0: 11th chapter of Revelation tonight. We begin the 11th chapter. We are continuing in this interlude that separates the 6th and 7th trumpet, just as there was an interlude in chapter 7 between the 6th and 7th seal. And and both of these interludes ultimately exist for the same reason. and We'll hopefully flesh that out, especially in Revelation 11. But we will just look at the first uh, example that Revelation 11 gives us. It gives us an an example of a measured temple as well as these two witnesses. And one of the interesting aspects of Revelation 11, um, perhaps one of my favorite parts as we get to certain chapters in Revelation, is there are certain chapters in Revelation that the interpretational differences are just about as far and skewed as you can imagine. And Revelation 11 is one of those chapters where the interpretations are... I mean, there, there's almost about as many interpretations are, as there are people who try to study and comment on Revelation. Um, it is one of those that has lots of interpretive difficulty and, and debate uh, over the history of the church. So tonight we're just going to look at the measured temple in verses 1 through 2. In chapter 10, John has been recommissioned in a sense. He has been given the little scroll to devour in order to prophesy and I believe that what he was given in that little scroll is both a reflection of what he's about to reveal here in Revelation 11 as well as at the end of Revelation 11 with the blowing of the seventh trumpet, the consummation of the age. He begins preaching the contents of the scroll. This message is global, it's universal to the godless nations that their rejection of God's truth and their persecution of God's people Uh, will now be met by a judgment to come, and that judgment will be seen at the seventh trumpet. So let's pray, uh, and then we're going to look at the first two verses. So let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you so much for this beautiful Lord's Day to gather together. We thank you for the worship this morning and for the ability to be reminded of the King that we have in Jesus. And God, we ask now that we be reminded of as we have surrendered to this King, that we now in this wilderness journey are secure in Him even though we will face persecution in this world. That we can be sure, though our outer flesh is wasted away, our inner self is being renewed every day. That we are secure in King Jesus no matter what the world does to us because of our faith in Him. So, Lord, we thank You for that promise as we look to Your Word tonight. Get me out of the way and allow Your Word to go forth with clarity. We say these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Alright, Revelation 11, verses 1 through 2. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God, and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out. For it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Alright. So what in the world is this talking about here? What is going on here? Remember, the... The book of Revelation is a book of symbols. It is a picture book. And these pictures have powerful meaning behind them. But, nevertheless, what are we to do with some of these pictures? Some of these pictures are not so easily interpreted as to what is the symbol being reflected by them. Are they meant to be understood figuratively? Are they meant to be understood literally? Literally. And I would argue that the nature of the book requires us to look at these things symbolically to find the literal meaning in the symbol. But nevertheless, that is not the only interpretation that exists. And so I want to kind of give you um, four of kind of the major, trust me, there are many more than these, but these are the major interpretations of what this measured temple or this measuring of the temple refers to. And so first, this is the view that many of us were raised on, especially here in the West, um, and a view that was really popularized just over 100 years ago, about 120 years ago, um, through the publishing of the Schofield Reference Bible, and the rise of dispensationalism and the futures position. And, and those who hold to this futurist dispensational belief believe that this uh, temple refers to a literal restored temple in the literal holy city of Jerusalem. Those worshiping in it are a remnant of believing ethnic Jews. Only ethnic Jews. Why? Because this this, um, interpretation believes that the church has already been raptured. The church is raptured and the only thing that is left is faithful Jews in the tribulation period. So this is why this is only referring to ethnic Jews in a real literal temple and a real literal Jerusalem. The measuring of the temple, the altar, and worshippers indicates that they will be physically protected by God, though there are differing interpretations of this. So uh, that's the main view, but it's not the only view within this camp. Some see this as both a spiritual protection instead of a physical, but the vast majority see them as being physically protected during the tribulation period. Accordingly, the outer court is usually identified with Gentiles who will persecute the remnant and overrun a literal Jerusalem during a literal 42-month period. And so this is all literal. That's the the idea here. There's no symbol here. There's no figurative language. Uh, The vast majority of this view is, is that this is meant to be understood as literal happening. Literal temple, real physical building, and a real literal Jerusalem over there in the Middle East with only ethnic Jews because the church has been raptured away. So everything is meant to be understand, understood as literally in this position. The preterists, those who see the book of Revelation as referring to the fall of Jerusalem primarily, um, see this as the events of the Jewish war, which did take about three and a half years to accomplish. And during that time, the literal temple was literally destroyed. We actually saw that prophesied this morning in Jesus' words um, there over Jerusalem. That the, the temple would be destroyed, Jerusalem would be destroyed, and so the preterists see this as referring solely to that event. And what's fascinating about the preterists and most futurists is that they actually both interpret Revelation very similarly. Everything is literal. The dating is the only thing that is different. The preterists sees all of this as literally happening with the fall of Jerusalem. And the future sees this as literally happening to Jerusalem, but in a future tribulation period after the rapture of the church. The Historicists, my favorites, because they just some of their interpretations just are, are something else, uh, they see this as a time where this refers to the measuring of the true remnant of believers that have existed in the apostate Catholic Church. So it's a measuring of those who were apostate. The the Catholic Church was apostate, but there were true believers inside of it. And some uh, historicists actually believe that the picture of John eating the little scroll was actually a picture of Luther at the Reformation. Um, I I don't agree with any of that. But it just goes to show some of the fanciful um, interpretations that these have. Um, When we look to the two witnesses, not next week. We won't have Sunday evening service next week because of Easter. Uh, but the following, when we look at the two witnesses, uh, the interpretations really get fanciful um, across the board with everyone as we will look to them when we get there. But, but what's my approach? Well, my approach is the eclectic approach, which really reflects more of the idealist approach here. And, and that is this, that this measuring of the temple un, uh, is, is to be taken figuratively and interprets the outer court. As the physical expression of the true spiritual Israel, which is susceptible to harm in this present age. The measuring of the temple parallels what the ceiling of the saints reflected back in the first interlude. That is, the spiritual protection of the church amid suffering in this present age. So just as that first picture of the ceiling of the 144,000 was a picture of the spiritual protection of the visible church militant in this world, in spite of the suffering it will face, the measuring of the temple is the picture of God's protection, spiritual protection over the church, though it will face persecution from the nations during this present age. So these interludes are parallel to with one another. And I want to try to flesh that out um, tonight as we look to it. So with those kind of o- overviews and, and understandings of, of what this is, I want to try to now argue for my approach as we look at this um, as a text which represents the church, what I would call the worshiping church in a persecuting age. That's the I think that's the best way to, to understand what we see here. So Verse 1, we see this this aspect of commissioning to arise and measure the temple. John tells us, he says, a measuring rod, like a staff, was given to him. Now, this rod that he's referring to is is likely um, something that would have been very common to the ancient Near East, which is this straight, hollow reed. They usually measure ten feet four inches, and it's what ancient surveyors would use to measure out land. And so, this big long staff, measuring staff that he gets, is, was probably pretty common for ancient land surveyors. This is how they would able to determine um, land, ra- uh, you know, land area and things like that. And and so here he's told to measure this temple. Now, which temple is this? Is this a literal temple? that he is measuring? Well, if you say that the book of Revelation was written before 70 A.D., it's possible that he has the literal temple in mind. I have already argued that I I don't think it was written in 70. I think it was written after the destruction of the temple. And what I think the temple that he has in mind here is not the temple of Herod, nor the temple of Solomon, but actually the eschatological temple that would be built by God himself in the latter days according to Ezekiel chapter 40 verses 40 through 48 chapters 40 through 48 and what's fascinating is this will not be the first time or excuse me the last time that John will be given the task to measure this parameters of a temple and a city as it refers to the people of God Revelation chapter 21, and when we get to Revelation 21, we'll really flesh Ezekiel 40 through 48 with Revelation 21 side by side, because that's the best time to do it, I think. But Revelation 21, verses 15 through 16. The new Jerusalem has come down into the new new heavens and the new earth, and John is tasked with measuring the city, the new Jerusalem. And listen to the measurements he gets. He says, And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall 144 cubits. By human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. Those numbers are symbolic. Twelve is what? The number of God's people. A thousand, the number of completeness. And have we seen that number 144 before? Back in chapter 7, the ceiling of the 144. And why that's so important, and we'll really bring this home when we get to Revelation 21 is that the sealing of the 144,000 in chapter 7 and the city, the new Jerusalem, the people of God in glory measuring 144 cubits tells me one thing. Those who God seals will be there in the end. Those who He seals, He will raise them up as His own on the last day. And they will be with Him forever in glory. What that tells me that there is 144 cubits there at the end in the New Jerusalem is that when God gets a hold of you, there are no dropouts. What he starts, he finishes. And that's really exciting. And so we see this measuring here. And I would argue that the reason that we don't get measurements here with this temple as opposed to the measurements we get in the New Jerusalem is because the temple that is being referred to here is a part of the temple that is already, but not yet. The temple here is the visible church, I would argue. Just like the first ceiling in Revelation 7 refers to the visible church, and then we get a picture of the invisible church waving palm branches in their glory, here with this picture of the temple. This is a a picture of the church militant on earth, sealed and protected, but under the persecution of the world, which is why we aren't given the measurements of completion like we will when it's all said and done in glory. This is amazing because this concept of measuring is really important. When you actually look to that end times temple that is given to Ezekiel, the words measured, measure, or measuring are used over 50 times in those eight chapters. In other words, this measuring has something that, it means something really important. We'll talk a little bit about what that is. But it's also important to note was when Ezekiel received this picture of the temple, did Ezekiel have a literal temple in mind? Did God give Ezekiel a picture of a literal temple in order for him to receive this prophecy? And the answer is, yes. Ezekiel saw a literal temple. But how else could he understand the presence of God? How else could he understand the atonement of God? Because in Ezekiel's temple they saw literal propitiatory sacrifices happening. Animal sacrifice will be restored. Ezekiel was given a vision by God in order for him to understand that in the latter days, God under his Messiah would restore his perfect presence with his people and there would be perfect sacrifice forever for his people. And what the New Testament does is it takes that literal picture that Ezekiel got for him to understand that provision of God. And it takes all of that provision and shows us that the true temple is Jesus Christ, who is the presence of God and who is the eternal sacrifice. This is why the idea of going back to a literal sacrificial system and a literal... Uh, temple is absolutely destroyed by Hebrews chapter 8 through 10. Because Jesus did away with that. Why, Why would we go back to that when all of that is found in Jesus? That's going back to shadows when we already have the substance. So did Ezekiel literally see those things? Of course he did. How else was he to understand the presence and provision of God's atonement? Christ said it was yet to come. But when Christ came, he becomes the lens by which we interpret everything before. We can't look at the Old Testament and just pretend like Jesus never came. And unfortunately, there are many who do. And by doing that, we miss the beauty of what they pointed to. And we do the same thing Israel did when they rejected him. You don't meet what we expected rather than seeing him as the lens to alter what they expected. This picture of measuring is also pictured in Zechariah chapter 2. Zechariah 2, 1 through 5, And I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. Then I said, Where are you going? And he said to me to measure Jerusalem, to see what its width and what its length is. And behold, the angel who talked with me came forward and another angel forward to meet him and said to him, Run, say to the young man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. And I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord. And I will be the glory in her midst. The picture that Zechariah has in mind here is that consummated Jerusalem and glory that is pictured in Revelation 21, and is foreshadowed in the measuring of the temple here, in Revelation 11. Rise and measure the temple of God, and the altar, and those who worship there. Notice, John is asked to measure three things. Not just the temple, not just his altar, but to also measure the people who are worshiping there. Which should already go to tell us that this measuring... It's meant to be understood symbolically. How are you going to just measure people with a ten foot rod? Are we just measuring everybody there? It's like, no. This is all meant to be symbolic. And the fact that the temple, the altar, and the people worshiping are all seen together and measured together is to tell us that these are all to be seen as one. They're all to be seen and understood as one. What John is doing here in Revelation 11, is what we call a prophetically enacted parable. It's when the prophet is given a task that acts out what God is actually doing. This happens quite a bit in the Old Testament. What are some prophetically enacted parables that you can think of? Hosea Gomer. That's a tough one. I mean, Hosea has to marry an adulterous wife. As a lived out parable of God's relationship to Israel. There's plenty more, some of which we are a little modest to speak of. (laughs) Isaiah being told to prophesy three years naked and barefooted. Whoa. Ezekiel building a model of the city, sleeping on both sides, and then being told to cook his food over his own dung. To which he says, Hold on, Lord, I've got standards. Let it at least be cow feces. It's like, all right. All of these are prophetically enacted parables. Jesus himself actually does this in the Holy Week with the withering of the fig tree. These are enacted parables. And that's what this measuring of the temple is all about. An enacted parable given in this vision to reveal what God is doing for his church in this period of the interadvental age. Now, that word temple there is the word naos, which refers only in the book of Revelation as the Holy of Holies. So what's being measured here, the inner sanctuary, the temple, is referring to the Holy of Holies. And this really puts us heavily on Ezekiel's vision rather than understanding this as either Solomon or Herod's temple. The Ezekiel eschatological messianic temple is what is in mind. The altar, that place of worship, sacrificial calling is, is to be measured and those worshiping. Now, who worships at the altar? Priest. Priest. Now, we might would have to be forced to say, okay, maybe these are going to be literal sacrifices and maybe these are going to be priests except for the fact Does anywhere in the New Testament refer to the New Covenant people as priests who give sacrifices? All the time. All the time. Literally in Revelation 5.10, when the angel is singing praise to the the Lamb, he says, you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. I think perhaps my favorite... I love Revelation in light of Hebrews because Hebrews has helped me a lot understand the symbolic language of the Old Covenant. But I don't think there's a better passage when we talk about how both the temple, the altar, and the worshipers, the priest of the altar, the priest of the sanctuary, all refer to the church than Hebrews chapter 13. Listen to this Hebrews chapter 13, verse 9 through 16. And what's amazing about this is this is getting into the application point of Hebrews. And listen to this doctrine. Hebrews 13, verse 9-16. through Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat Stop. Who are those at the time when Hebrews is written that are serving the altar that have no place there? Those are the Levitical priests. He's saying, they've got no place at our altar. They're at theirs. They rejected Jesus. For the body of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate, in order to sanctify the people through His own blood. Therefore, let us go to Him outside the camp and bear the reproach He endured. For here, we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Not a physical Jerusalem, the new one. Verse 15, Through Him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge His name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have. For such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Who is the temple Who is the altar? Who are the people worshiping? It's the church. It's the church. The three things measure connote the church as a corporate entity, temple and altar, and as an individual set of believers, those who worship. So both the corporate and individual aspect of the the church is being referred to here. And does the Bible say anything and refer to both the corporate and the individual believer as temples of of God? Of course. But ultimately, how did we, how do people become the temple of God? And the answer is by being built onto the one who is the cornerstone, the temple of God himself. Jesus said in John chapter 2, verse 19 through 22, Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you'll raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. What we worship in Holy Week is the destruction of a temple on Friday and the building up of the eschatological temple of God, the eternal temple of God, that blessed Sunday morning when He came out of the grave. The cornerstone that had been rejected now raises in glory and takes living stones and builds them on Him as the temple of God. That's what we worship here. I love John. Because not only does John reveal to us that Jesus is the temple in John 2, but that opening prologue in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, has one primary purpose. John uses tabernacle language of Exodus and applies it to Jesus. The Word of God tabernacled among us. He was full of grace and truth. That's tabernacle language. God has tabernacled among us in Jesus. He is the tabernacle. And John 2 says, He's the temple. That's why we're going to preach John after summer. Because I just can't wait to get to it. I'm so excited about the gospel according to John. Listen to what Jesus tells the church suffering in Revelation 3. The one who conquers... Revelation 3.12, the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. How can a person be a pillar? When you understand this temple in light of what it's meant to be, we are stones building up the temple of the living God, the eternal temple built on the cornerstone of Jesus Christ. Not a physical building, but a spiritual one made up of the people of God, the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 3.16 This gives us the individual aspect that every individual Christian is a temple of God. 1 Corinthians 3.16-17 Do you know not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. 2 Corinthians 6 the corporate aspect. Second Corinthians 6.16 What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And just as we preached this morning on 1 Peter 2.5 you yourselves, Christians, like living stones are being built up As a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Temple, altar, priest. That's what we are, church. We are a holy priesthood set apart to offer sacrifices to God. And what are those sacrifices? You are the sacrifice. A bloodless living sacrifice. There doesn't need to be any more shedding of the blood. Christ once and for all. Once and for all. That's why even this notion that, well, they won't be propitiatory sacrifices, they'll be celebratory sacrifices. For what? What in the world do I need to celebrate a dying animal when I have the perfect Lamb of God to celebrate? It's why the more that I've understood in light of who we have in Jesus, the fact of going back to shadows and signs of physical things so misses the beauty of what we have in Jesus. And it's why the writer of Hebrews is so adamant, don't neglect such a great salvation. Stop fading. Stop going back. Because to go back is to miss the glory of the substance for the shadow. So what is this measuring all about. Why is measuring so significant? Well, measuring the temple marks three specific things. Being measured means that we have been set apart as God's portion. God knows his own. Secondly, it means we have been set apart for God's protection. And thirdly, we have been set apart for God's Presence. We won't look there for the sake of time, but in Ezekiel 42.20-43.9, that whole section there is Ezekiel being told to measure the temple, the parameters, so that God can come and dwell and live in the temple. So, to be measured is to be set apart as God's portion, to be set apart for His protection, and to be set apart for His presence. That's a glorious reality, church. Do you realize that's who you are? You are set apart as God's portion. He knows you by name. You are mine. You're set apart for His protection. And this is spiritual protection we'll see in a moment. He will not lose you. And you're set apart for His presence the Holy Spirit of God lives in you Christian that like we should never grow numb to that that God has chosen to take up residence in you that's amazing and it, we should never grow numb to that that He is actively at work in us to work and will for His pleasure. Marvelous. These two interludes in Revelation are serving to demonstrate that believers are doubly secure in Jesus Christ. Sealed by God and measured by God. Doubly secured. And the reason why that's fascinating to me is in light of a text we read this morning. Remember the prophecy of how, why Jesus had to ride in on a donkey? Zechariah chapter 9. Listen to how that portion of the prophecy ends. As he rides into this triumphal entry, Zechariah 9, 11 through 12. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double, double. And the pictures of God sealing His people and the pictures of God measuring His people is to show that you are doubly secure in Christ Jesus. What a promise to a persecuted church because that's who this letter was first written to. It was written to a church in suffering. And the message Jesus wants to give His church in the midst of this present age as we wait and long for His return is that you're doubly secure in me. You are sealed and measured no matter what the world does to you. What a blessed hope. This picture is to demonstrate the ultimate invincibility of Christ's church. You are spiritually invincible in Christ Jesus. But then we get this really interesting shift that seems to happen. Verse 2, he says So, verse 1 Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there, but do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. The outer court of the temple. What is being referred to here? Now, what was the outer court? The outer court was the court of the Gentiles, the court of the nations. But it's important to note that in Ezekiel's temple, as well as the case with Solomon's temple, there was no court of the Gentiles. That was something Herod added. In Solomon's temple, there was the Holy of Holies, the inner sanctuary for the priest, and then the outer court where everybody else went. Because what was God's house meant to be? A place for the prayer of the nations. They were all meant to come to the house. By adding that court of Gentiles, it's why Jesus is so angry against it. They had separated them from coming to worship the Lord. You see, when Jesus cleansed the temple, He did something that shocked everybody. He didn't cleanse the temple from the Gentiles like they expected Him to. Jesus came and cleansed the temple for the Gentiles. That's why He literally stops the worship happening and clears out why, so they can have access to worship. Jesus didn't come to cleanse the temple from the Gentiles. He came to cleanse the temple for the Gentiles and what will he do on Friday when he declares to Tetelestai? He removes all the courts and gives direct access to the Holy of Holies for everyone who receives him by faith. Jew and Gentile. Powerful. So what do we have here in this outer court? What's being referred to He's told not to measure it, to leave that out. Now I think this is to be understood a couple of ways here. What is measured is that which is pure and placed under divine protection. That is to say that it is untouchable and it is unknown by the world. The inner sanctuary, nobody got to see in Like, only the priests were allowed in the inner sanctuary, right? Like, the world can't see in the inner sanctuary. So that which is in the inner sanctuary is hidden and only known by God. But it is perfectly protected where God dwells. So what I think we have here, and I'll I'll try to flesh this out, is that the inner sanctuary is referred to the invisible church. The pure, perfect people of God. Perfectly protected. Whereas the outer courts, that which the world has access to, is the visible church in this present age. Which will be marked by what? Persecution and suffering. And I'll try to flesh that out here now. By being in the outside of the temple, it refers to that which is visible to the world. It's not measured, which simply means that that which is outside is exposed to both assault and attacks. Both spiritual attacks as well as physical ones. The place of pure worship, of the presence of God, will never be taken or assaulted. It's protected. The inner sanctuary will never be removed. It will never be harmed. It will never be assaulted. Thus, the true church is protected from apostasy and divine wrath. But the visible church on earth, the militant church, will be exposed to persecution and suffering at the hand of the nations. This picture of being cast out, left out, is very important. Because God's true temple, His people, will always be seen as outsiders of this world and will be persecuted as such. will give you some examples of this, beginning with our Lord Himself, Jesus. Jesus has been teaching the, uh, the, uh, the disciples... And we read this in Luke chapter 4. The Pharisees come and it says, When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove Him, Jesus, out of the town and brought Him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so they could throw Him down off the cliff. They brought Him outside of the town to, bring, to give Him harm. When they crucified him, where did they crucify him? Outside the gates. There's no place for you in this town. That's the world's answer to the church. There's no place for you here. What did they do to Stephen? Acts chapter 7 verse 58. Then they cast him out the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And what does the Bible tell and command His people? The church? Hebrews 13, 12-13 So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify people through His own blood. Therefore, let us go to Him outside the camp and bear the reproach He endured. In other words, To be the temple of God on earth is to experience the same fate as our Master. It's to be trampled underfoot by the world and to be left out. That's the picture here. This is not those part of the temple being spiritually unprotected. This is them being physically left to be persecuted by the world in which God will use that persecution not only to sanctify and purify His people, but to establish the judgment by which He brings, which is what the seventh trumpet is going to be about. Those who remain faithful in the outer court, the visible church, in spite of the persecution, temptations, and suffering, show themselves to be a part of the inner sanctuary. Those who fall show that they always belonged to the nations. Those who fall to the trampling and temptations of the nations show that's always who they belong to. Which is why John, the same writer of this revelation, says in his epistle, why did those go out from us? They went out from us because they were not of us. They weren't a part of the inner sanctuary. They were a part of the nations who they went after. The visible church will be a mixed bag this side of heaven. One of the beauties of being Baptist and why we believe in baptism on the basis of faith And credo-baptism, the the necessity of church discipline, is because it's our duty to do the best we can to make the visible church reflect the invisible church as much as humanly possible. It's why we wait for that confession of faith. Because then we can at least hold accountable on the basis of church discipline those who act in in, in disagreement with the body of Christ. And the precepts of Christ. The visible church. Is one. That will face the persecution of this world. But they are protected spiritually. Because they've been measured by the Lord. They are left. For the persecution to face in this life. With the guarantee. That having been sealed and measured by God. They will endure to the end. This is a great hope for those who first received this and to our brothers and sisters across this globe right now who are being trampled by the nations. And they can take heart knowing they've been measured and that God knows. He sees and He will vindicate the pain they endure. And that the light momentary affliction they are suffering through is doing nothing but preparing them for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comprehension it says it was given to the nations and the holy city shall be trampled for 42 months that picture of 42 months comes out of Daniel chapter 8 In Daniel chapter 8 the little horn this antichrist figure is given authority to do what trample the host of heaven for how long? 42 months. Revelation 13. This picture of the beast who is the reflecting of the little horn. Revelation 13, 6 and 7. It says, It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming His name and His dwelling. That is... Those who dwell in heaven. Who who are those who dwell in heaven? Believers. Where does your citizenship lie? Heaven. Philippians 3.20 Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. The outer court. The visible church. The people of God in this present evil age Secure in salvation, but open to physical suffering, which has a purpose in the plan of God. It really does. Listen to what Peter says. 1 Peter 4, verses 12 through 19. I just love this section because this shows you suffering has a purpose, Christian. Pain has a purpose. Your pain, your suffering is not the absence of God. That's the vast majority of what Revelation is trying to teach the church. And this is what Peter says. 1 Peter 4, 12-19. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Literally, he just says there, the fiery trials shouldn't be strange. but let him glorify God in that name. Here it is. For it is time for judgment to begin where? At the household of God. And it begins with us. The outer courts. The visible church. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Suffering has a purpose in the plan of God. And what is the call to the church? Look to your faithful creator and live for Him until the end. Why? Because He has sealed you and measured you. And the suffering you faced is only a test to show I'm all in for Him. There's nothing this world can do to me That would make me give up on Him. That's what the sufferings for. It makes me more like Jesus. Which is why the writer of Hebrews literally tells you, get outside the gate where He died to bear the reproach He did. You get out there with Him. Jesus said, if the world hated me, it will hate you. And it will persecute you. The reason why this, to me, this outer courts is so picturesque of the visible churches because here's the reality. Name a single time in the Bible where a righteous people of God existed apart from external persecution. I'll wait. You won't find it. Every time a visible remnant of God is on earth, that visible remnant is under what? the persecution of the world. Why would we be any different? And why would we think all of a sudden, even though God has made millions of His faithful saints endure horrific suffering, that this one little portion of the Western church is not going to have to suffer and get raptured out? That's just arrogance. And it misses the grand reality. Suffering does have a purpose. It isn't meaningless. And it is the means by which God stores up His righteous wrath against an indignant world that not only persecuted His worshiping church, but as we'll see with the two witnesses, His witnessing church. That's the two pictures we get in Revelation 11. The worshiping church, the temple, and the witnessing church, the two witnesses. And what happens to both of them? They are trampled by the nations, And what happens to both of them? They stay secure. Because what happens to those witnesses? They're resurrected. They get victory. Don't you see it now? How it all comes together? It is precisely the visible church's faithfulness unto death that actually serves to bring the destruction of that great serpent. Listen to Revelation chapter 12, 12 verse 11 and they have conquered Him, these are the saints, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for because they loved not their lives even unto death. Our victory is found in our being completely consumed in Jesus. My life is not my own. I've been bought with a price. I'm attached to the head. I'm attached to the cornerstone. Both Jesus Christ. There's nothing else in this world that it can offer me to pull me away from what I have in Jesus. That's got to be the heart of the Christian. What can you offer me that would ever pull me away from Jesus? And the answer is nothing. Nothing. It is Scoobalon. Poop. Literally, that's what Paul says. I count it all. Scoobalon. Literally feces. Compared to the internal treasures that I have in Christ Jesus. So be faithful unto death. Though you are persecuted in this world, you have been sealed and measured by God. And the holy city here that's trampled, that's the true Jerusalem. It's not the physical one. Because you know how the book of Revelation refers to the literal Jerusalem? The anti-Jesus Jerusalem that existed at this time? These persecuting Jews who despised Jesus? This is how John refers to the literal Jerusalem. In Revelation 14, he refers to it as, as Sodom and Egypt. In Revelation 16, he refers to it as Babylon. Babylon. And who does he refer to as the new Jerusalem? Jews and Gentiles who are in who? Jesus Christ. Why? Because Israel's Messiah constitutes who is Israel. He gets that right. And the only way to be Israel is to be attached to its Messiah. And if you're not attached to the Messiah, what does Romans 11 say? You get plucked off even if you were a natural branch. While the wild branches are grafted in. And who's the vine? Jesus. Why were they cut off? Because unbelief. Why were you grafted in? Because of belief. So that's why there's no boasting. Because it was all Him. We're not, we shouldn't be shocked that the church is given the, the right to be the holy city, whereas the unbelieving world, the unbelieving Jerusalem is now being brought to the the status of the Gentiles, the persecutors. Because that's exactly what Paul taught in Galatians chapter 4 with that allegory between Sarah and Hagar. Those who try to stay under the law are the sons of who? The slave woman. But those who are children of promise are those who are from the city above, the holy city, the new Jerusalem, and are both sons and daughters of Abraham and Sarah by faith and faith alone. This 42 months, some see this as being literal, a literal three and a half years, the final. Uh, some see it as the early part of the three and a half year period. Some see it as a, a last part of the three and a half year period of the tribulation. But I, this is not to be understood uh, literally, I, I believe. I believe, like the vast majority of the revelation, we need to understand it as symbolic. And 42, uh, which you'll see this time again. So so you'll see 42 months, 1260 days, time, times, and a time and a half. And guess what? They all refer to the same exact time period. They all mean three and a half years. All of them equal that. But what is interesting about that is how long was Jesus' ministry on earth? Three and a half years? Fascinating. And then he makes a new covenant which does away with the old sacrificial system who I believe is the prince in Revelation 9.27 when Jesus at the midweek creates a covenant that does away with the sacrificial system and thus ushers in a final three and a half year period of the tribulation which is the entire church age when He will come to return to consummated in glory. And I believe that's the three and a half years here, the 42 months, the 1260 days. It's all the same period. It's the period of the interadvental age. And what's amazing, when we look to Daniel, who uses these terms over and over again, Daniel 7.25, Daniel 12.7 and 11.12, Daniel 9.24 to 27. This picture uh, that Daniel gives for this time period is a picture of tribulation where the people of God and most notably the temple of God, is placed under attack by the nations. Every time Daniel is referring to this concept of 42 months in his prophecies, he's referring to a time when the people of God and the temple of God will actually remain under attack. Maybe like the outer courts being trampled on for 42 months. But what else do I believe why we should understand? The 42 months, this symbol of 1260 days, time, times and a half, all equaling the same time period. Why do I believe that this is referring to the church age? And the number one reason why is because when we look at Numbers chapter 33, uh, Numbers chapter 33 verses 5, basically through 49 at the end of the chapter, Numbers 33 verses 5 through 49 lays out for us a history of Israel's encampment in the wilderness. And you know how many times it says they stopped and camped? 42. Israel had 42 encampments in its wilderness before being brought in the promised land. And the church is in its wilderness age. Experiencing its 42 months of encampment as it waits to be brought into the eternal promised land of the king. That's why I think it refers to this. And the reason why I think we need to understand the church in its wilderness age is because of what we will see in Revelation chapter 12 about the woman who has to flee to the wilderness. Listen to this Revelation chapter 12, verse five and six. and you'll see this same date. Revelation 12, 5 and 6. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she is, uh, where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days, 42 months, which is the exact same time frame that these two witnesses are going to proclaim to the world. Look at Revelation 12:14, a second picture of the same story, but the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time, times, and a half a time. Three and a half. It's the same story. The woman, the, people, the bride of Christ, the new Jerusalem, adorned, cared for, she is fled, kept, preserved, in the wilderness for 42 months the church age we are in the wilderness we are in our encampment waiting for our Joshua's return to usher us in to the eternal promised land forever the uses in 126 and 1214 confirm that revelation 11, 1 and 2 Alludes to an attack on the community of faith throughout the church age. In twelve six, the messianic community, the woman is safe from the dragon's onslaught during the three and a half years by taking refuge in the wilderness, where we're told she has a place prepared by God. In twelve fourteen, virtually identical, she is carried on wings of an eagle. Ever heard of that in the Old Testament? Any? How about Isaiah? You will run and not grow weary. This is the beautiful promise of God to sustain His people in the wilderness journey as they await their returning king. The place which Christians are kept safe from the devil, I believe, is referring to the invisible sanctuary of God. That place where He can't get to. That place from the fact that inside you, Christian, is the Holy Spirit of God. For greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. The reason why Satan can't get you, Christian, is because you are the inner sanctuary. You are the inner sanctuary. And though you are physically open to pain and suffering in this wilderness, spiritually, you are the inner sanctuary. And you cannot be touched. That's amazing promise. We are given, we are the inner sanctuary. And every day, we are given new mercy every morning and spiritual guidance and protection through the indwelled Holy Spirit. Every day, church, we are nourished in the wilderness by the rock who pours out water forever, Jesus Christ. He is our rock that gives water, and He is our manna that we feed upon forever in the wilderness. Which is why Jesus said, man does not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That's where we are sustained in the wilderness. This is the picture of the protection and the persecution of God's worshipping church in this age in the wilderness. So, what are some conclusions? First, we see the church is the dwelling place of God, the worshiping community. You're the dwelling place of God, both individually and corporately, church. Like, that's amazing. And, I, like, we say this stuff so much. And we've been taught it since we were little, and in Vacation Bible School, and you know, in truth, in Crusaders and everything else, we've learned this stuff, and we've and it's, we almost become numb because, you know, just it it almost breeds complacency because we've said it so many times. But the living God of heaven lives inside of you. He has made. His home in you, and so if you have a problem worshiping, it might mean he's not at home. What's the old uh, kids' hymn? Uh, joy is the flag that flies over my heart when the King is in residence there. Something to that extent, my friends. I'm not saying that you won't struggle with pain and sorrow and suffering, depression or anything like that. But as the psalmist says in Psalm 42, oh soul, why are you downcast? Put your hope in God. You've got to preach to your soul. God dwells in me. Greater is He that is in me than he that is in the world. You've got to preach that to yourself and believe it. Knowing that even when you don't know what to pray, God is at work in you to give you exactly what to pray so that you align yourself with His will and that He can answer His prayers for His glory. That's amazing! God is in you. And because you are the dwelling place of God, you are sealed and measured as His portion under His protection and you are a place of His presence. What a testimony of the church. What a testimony of the individual believer measured as his portion for his protection and in his presence. Wow, what a testimony you have, Christian. Secondly, yes, there is opposition and hostility in this present age but we will remain as God's worshiping people and as we will see next time we will stay together as God's witnessing people. This age will be marked by pain. And Jesus never pulled the wool over His eyes over His believers and followers. That's exactly what you're going to face in this world. And perhaps if everything's going really smooth and you're not being given pushback and there's not a lot of things happening in turmoil and there's not a lot of people being a bit abrasive to this message of Jesus that you're given. It's perhaps that you're not either giving His message or not reflecting Him very much. I think it was Spurgeon who said, be weary when men speak well of you in the world. And the mindset there is, they hated Jesus, but they absolutely love you. Maybe there's a disconnect. The church will be a persecuted people in this age. That's, a, that's a, an absolute guarantee. But though we are physically vulnerable, we are spiritually invincible. That's the measured temple. Though our outer courts, that which is available and open, the true church to the world, is physically vulnerable, the true church of Jesus Christ is spiritually Invincible. Physically vulnerable, spiritually invincible. That's the tension we live in in this present evil age. We are secured in our faith in the crucified and risen Lord Jesus. And then finally, there is safety in the inner sanctuary. To know God. And to be known by Him. And the greatest place to seek nourishment in the wilderness is to gather together with the inner sanctuary. Your brothers and sisters in the Lord. To retreat from the world for a moment, to retreat from the outer courts into the inner courts to be nourished for the wilderness out there. That's why, we, that's why the book of Hebrews says, do not neglect meeting together. How can you survive the wilderness if you're not in the inner sanctuary with the people? Being nourished and strengthened and cared for and given accountability and love. And when we gather together on the Lord's Day, we're reminded that out there has an end. But brothers and sisters, this right here is forever. That out there will come to an end. This right here, this is forever. This is the inner sanctuary. Where each week God has given us a blessed day to start our week off by retreating from the outer courts to be nourished, strengthened, loved, And every time we gather together as the people of God, we're coming into the inner sanctuary to build up one another, to strengthen one another, and to prepare one another for what it is to live in the wilderness as the people of God. Don't neglect the gathering of the inner sanctuary where we find nourishment and strength in the wilderness. The assembly of the saints is the place for spiritual strength and nourishment to sustain us in the hour. What a blessed promise we have from God. That though we are being afflicted out there, inwardly we are being renewed day by day. Spiritually we are invincible in Christ Jesus. No matter what the world does to us in the process. We are the worshiping people of God in the wilderness. And Next time we will see that we are also the witnessing people of God in the wilderness. Let's pray. Father God, thank You for Your Word. It's complex at times and difficult and who are we to try to ascend to the powers and glories of Your mind? But I am so thankful, God, that You have can condescended in Your Word in such a way as to make it clear for us the beauty and care of Your salvation and provision for Your people. Lord, I'm so thankful to know that You did not leave us without warning to what this age would mark for us. Persecution and suffering. But that it's not purposeless. It's never meaningless. And that You show us that it all has an end. An end that will come with the consummation of glory where we will get to see our Jesus face to face and be with Him forever. Where there will be no more outer courts, just Holy of Holies. What a day that will be. So God, as we find ourselves encamped in the wilderness, continue to fill us with Your Spirit that You have so wonderfully indwelled us with. To be your worshiping people in the midst of the wilderness. Oh God, tune our heart to worship. Give us mouths of praise, hearts of joy that long for you and sing for you. Because you have sealed us, you have measured us. We are your proportion, we are under your protection. And we are houses of your presence. Let us live in light of that glorious testimony. And be faithful even unto death. We thank you. We praise you, Jesus. In your precious and holy name, amen.